And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. So, what do we have today? Today, we want to understand how people, how a nation that's polarized can reconcile. And to do that, we're going to share a few stories from Bahrain, a tiny island country in the Gulf, close to Qatar, and then hop up across the water to Northern Ireland, and that'll become clear why we're going there when we get to it. I'm Hiba Fisher. And I'm Razan Al-Zayani, and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Let's start somewhere in the middle, in Japan. I was uh, studying in Japan. This is Yaqub, a Bahraini who spent a few years studying for his master's in Japan. Uh, in a city called Nagoya. It's in the main island of Japan. It's uh, headquarters for Toyota company. The year is 2011, and there are revolutions across the Arab world, in Tunis, in Egypt. Obviously, that was a very crazy time, so I was stuck to my laptop the whole day, day and night, and I didn't get much sleep, you know, you're just following Egypt, you're following everywhere. At the time where all of these events were happening in Japan, we also had a big disaster, which was the East Japan earthquake with the Fukushima and everything. The death toll has risen to 4,314. At least 8,606 people are still missing. More than two moving water would swept people away. So you have these debris The earthquake causes a leak in a nuclear reactor in Fukushima, a nearby city to Yaqub. Malfunctions are occurring at the power plant near Tokyo and the facility in Onagawa. After the leak in Fukushima, because the radiation is airborne, so the Bahrain embassy called us and evacuated us. Obviously, they were quite worried about us. There is a chance of a meltdown. Officials are taking all the necessary precautions, including evacuating the surrounding area. For more on this side of the story, we're joined... I even remember I did the very silly thing of, as I was packing, I was like, I have too many dirty clothes. I need to wash some of my clothes. So I remember putting all my clothes in the washing machine and I had the television on because uh, through the television, you can get earthquake alerts that alert you of the earthquake a few seconds before so you can prepare yourself and take cover. So the TV was on and as I was hanging my clothes out, the news anchor was telling the story that Oh, if you're washing your clothes, you shouldn't hang your clothes outside because of the radiation and it might, you know, might, you know, stick to your clothes, etc. So, half of my clothes are still on the clothesline. I had to, I had to go back with a with a half-empty suitcase, so I had to leave all my clothes there. So Yaqub is evacuated from Japan and flown back home to Bahrain, and I was literally. And he removed from one sort of chaotic environment, brought back to another one. Actually, it happened when we were on our way back. This is Basil, another Bahraini. We were actually in the airplane coming back, so we didn't have any news. We didn't know what was going on. We just got out of the airplane into an empty airport, empty roads. I'm like, okay, what's going on? Nobody came to pick us up, made a phone call. Uh, they told us to take a taxi and go home. That's when we realized what was happening. What was happening were the early days of a political crisis in Bahrain, the actual details of which we'll get back to in a moment. But first, let's step backwards a bit so we can appreciate context. Can I do something? Can you move the mic from your left collar to your right collar? Because you're speaking in that direction, Tahiba. Yeah, okay. I'll let you know if it, yeah, cool. Can you talk about what it was like growing up in Bahrain? I'm originally from Manama. 
from uh, Farig al-Fadl. Growing up, <laughs> I hated it. I couldn't get away with anything, especially in, in, in a small neighborhood in Manama, where we were all families. We got out of one house, right into another, right into a third, right into a fourth. We were all just like one big family. We were from all sects, all levels of income, all levels of education, background, families, educations. Everything was different about us. We didn't care about all of that. We, we just wanted to have fun. I really, literally didn't know the difference between Sunnis and Shias until I went to the States, uh, until I went to college. The president of Muslim Student Associations one time came to me and asked me, right after Friday prayer where he came and talked to me, with his bodyguards, I remember looking at his bodyguards, uh, the smallest guy of them made me look like a midget, and I'm a big guy. <laughs> he came and asked me, what's in common between you and, my, uh, and us? Why do you come to our mosque? Um, I actually told him, if you don't see what's in common between yourself and myself, just after I finished uh, Friday prayer with you, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for this community you call yourself president of. The hell with you and a few other words that I can't say. And that's when I walked out of the mosque and never walked back in, because it's not the Islam that I know. Something to be proud of here in Bahrain is uh, that the fact that it is a melting pot of different cultures. We always accepted and embraced those that are different from us. That's something to, to protect. Now, fast forward back to 2011. Basil and his family touch down in Bahrain to empty roads and are told to take a taxi and just go home. While Bahrain is a tolerant society, there were political fractures over the years. There's a history of Sunni-led cross-sectarian debate in the 1950s, in the 1960s, again in the 90s in Bahrain. Bahrain has a history of intense political dialogue, more so than its other Gulf neighbors. But we're not here to dissect the politics or to try to draw any conclusions about who's right, who's wrong. There's enough of that floating in the media. We will run through a quick history lesson for context, but above the politics, we started to ask ourselves, how do you move forward as a society from polarizing times? First, the history lesson. We promise it'll be quick. So the year is 2011. A group of Bahrainis posted a Facebook page calling for people to protest on February 14th. This is Yaqub again from the beginning of our story, who was caught in the Japanese earthquake. February 14th is a significant date in, in Bahrain's uh, recent history. It's the day where Bahrainis voted for the national charter. So 10 years ago in 2001, on February 14th, the national charter was this document drawn together that outlined a path towards greater democracy. Because until this point, Bahrain operated as a monarchy with a ruling family. And 98.4% of Bahrainis voted in favor of this national charter on February 14th, 2001. A year later... A new constitution was instated, and, and that's where problems started to arise. Because the opposition at the time were not very happy with how the constitution came out. Uh, they felt that 
as the sort of the soul of the national action charter wasn't really uh, realized through the constitution so fast forward 10 years you have the revolution in egypt the revolution in tunis and this facebook page goes up urging bahrainis to take to the streets on february 14 2011. So where, do you remember where you were um, February 14th, 2011? What were you doing? We, I was at home. I was eight months pregnant. I know that's why, because I was at home. This is Yasmin. You know, you hear all these random people calling and telling you what's happening and you're like, you, you didn't understand. And then when you actually drove past things, you, you saw the extent of what was happening. And in the beginning, you didn't think it was bad because they're like, it was a carnival. <laughs> There are kids playing in the roundabouts, there's it's like popcorn stations, there's candy floss, there's people taking picnic mats and sitting down and having, you know, food and you're like, okay, this is this is a great, great thing. What's happening? What are we, what are we fighting for? Because I didn't know what was happening. Because everyone had a different story. What were people telling you? Um, well, if you ask one person, they'd be like, oh, we're trying to um, improve Bahrain, we want to get rid of the government. The other one's like, no, we're trying to get rid of the king. The other one's like, I'm just here because my friends are here. On February 15, 2011, processions started to make their way to the Lulu or Pearl Roundabout, a central monument in the middle of Manama, the capital. In the first two weeks, estimates placed the crowds at Lulu at around 100,000 people on some occasions. The majority of protesters in Lulu were demanding some sort of governmental reform. Whereas elsewhere on the island, pro-government supporters congregated in places like Al Fatah Mosque as an alternative forum, and estimates placed these crowds also at around 100,000 people. What emerged? The loudest voices were two sides, pro-government and the opposition. We won't go into the specific demands of each side because each side was fragmented further in its ideologies. But the pro-government became associated with Sunni Islam because the ruling family is Sunni, and the opposition became associated with Shia Islam, which is often cited as between 60 to 70 percent of the population. What began as a political conflict devolved quite quickly as it was felt in the streets into a sectarian conflict between Shia and Sunni. The sectarianism could be seen as a cause or a consequence. This is Suhail. Uh, my name is Suhail al Gusebi founder of the Bahrain Foundation for Reconciliation and Civil Discourse. Which is a very long name, embarrassingly <laughs> long name and difficult to remember. He also happens to have been my kickboxing instructor in high school. I can't adopt a narrative for you to explain it, but I'll do my best to explain it. What we're trying to deal with is sectarianism as a consequence. The narrative of the protest is that we as Shias have been excluded. And research shows that exclusion is the main driver of conflict. So there's a perception that the Shias or the protesters say that we have been excluded and we're sick and tired of being discriminated against, hence we want to now ask and demand for our rights. And so the pro-government slash Sunni narrative is that Bahrain has always been uh, living well together and how could our fellow citizens rise up like this and start destroying our country and tearing up our fabric? This is a sectarian movement backed by Iran. And then it got into the Sunni versus Shia. This is Yasmin again. We've, we've never, I've never, it's never been an issue. We've never said, oh, hi, I'm so-and-so and I'm Shia or I'm Sunni. And you're like, now it's become to that point. Too many friendships got ruined, too many workplaces, you know, colleagues and that. I know someone that had a work colleague and they were great friends. And the day it happened, there, there, was no, there was no words between them. It just it was an instant separation. 
people got fired or people left because they were uncomfortable working with the opposition or the pro or whatever it was. And, and that was sad. Uh, you know, you, you're taught to, to, especially Bahrain. Bahrain is so diverse. We have everyone here. You've got every nationality here, and that's what makes Bahrain. We're not just one nationality. And keep in mind, Bahrain is very small. There's 1.3 million people, 56% of whom are Bahrainis. Everybody knows everybody else. And to fight like this, it's split families, it's split childhood friendships. It, was, it started off at work. Yasmin works as a recruitment manager. And we'd have a lot of clients point blank tell us, oh, okay, we don't want to hire a Shia. And you're like, uh, you, you can't do that. It's, it's whoever's best for the job. But they would say it in a way that they can't really get in trouble for, if that makes sense. Oh, we're just high, oh, is that his name? Oh, we're not going to do that. And vice versa. Oh, is he Sunni? Oh, mm, that's not going to work. And had, they, like, had they ever done that before? No, no, never. It was always whoever was the best candidate. It got to a point where your family name, where you live, what your accent was like, if you couldn't figure it out, or how you dress, and it got, it got so detailed. You know, which village? Oh, he's from so-and-so. Yeah, we don't want him. And you just think, well, that's really sad because he, was, he could have made you millions, you know? Like, you just lost. 1,624 people are estimated to have either been suspended or dismissed from their jobs during the crisis in 2011. The economic consequence of this divisive mentality were severe, and these divides spilled into all aspects of life, including no longer feeling safe in the early days of the crisis. So, in the early weeks, citizens took security into their own hands. People created makeshift checkpoints outside of their neighborhoods, stopping cars and people trying to enter to check, are you Sunni? Are you Shia? But I think they thought, okay, you know what, we're going to protect our, our village, we're going to protect our sect. And they did, and literally every exit pretty much almost had like a few people there. During the beginning, you had five-year-old boys with knives, like eight-year-old boys with li like little machetes. Lord knows where they got them from, because I've never seen one in, like, in my life. I'm like, what's happening here? And, and they were just, and, and they had blocked the entrances and exits into certain areas. These are kids, and some were teenagers, some were young boys, some were adults. And you just think, where are your parents here? You're like, you have no shoes on and you're carrying a knife and they wouldn't let you go. They'd barricade it with um, blocks. So basically there was only one way in and one way out. That was the idea. Um, and they got everyone, they, they didn't care. And this is pro and anti, both, everyone. Everyone had got the same concept. Oh, we're not gonna let them into our, our area and vice versa. We've heard this before. We've gone to, to villages and we've gone to medrasas and, and... This is Suhail of the Bahrain Reconciliation Foundation again. And where people say, well, the true nature of Bahrainis came out during the crisis. We thought Bahrainis were, you know, uh, loving and open-minded and whatever, but one crisis and everybody showed their true nature and we realized we're all sectarian. And so what happens is, in times of fear, it's not that we become sectarian, it's that we just do things out of fear. Fear leads to anger. And they became afraid, am I going to be uh, made irrelevant? Am I going to be killed? Are, are the protesters going to come in and take over the country? Are we become, going to become a, a stooge of Iran? Or vice versa. There was so much fear. So when people don't feel safe as part of the community or as part of a country, well, then I go back to my tribe or I go back and take a step I become uh, my only source of safety is my family 
or my sect or my religion. So they become entrenched. The sectarian issue is a very complicated one, and... This is Jane Kinnanmont, a senior research fellow and deputy head of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House, an independent think tank in the UK. And the political disputes in Bahrain don't fall neatly along Sunni-Shia lines. Part of what is going on is good old-fashioned class politics, that the places that have been... Most involved in protests have been places that are relatively economically marginalised, uh, where young people feel that they don't have that much of a stake in the country, and many of them believe that that's linked to their sectarian affiliation, that they face discrimination partly because they are Shia. Uh, but their view of the government will be often quite different than others of the same religious belief that have a a different educational background and a a different class background. It seems to me that the the dispute over sectarian identity is more of a contest over what being Bahraini really means. It's not necessarily about division, uh, but about trying to reconceive what national unity means and who defines it. We had uh, someone we knew. Um, this is Yasmin again. Beat up severely, very, very badly hospitalized because he was Shia and, and by teenagers. Beat him to a pulp. So people started to carry things in their cars just in case because you heard stories. You're like, oh, so and so got beaten up. Okay, gotta be prepared. Just, just carry something in your car just in case. And I was thinking, what am I gonna carry? Like, what am I gonna carry in my car? What, what am I gonna do? Realistically, honestly, people say, "Oh, we're just gonna drive through." Yeah, we don't care who it is. But trust me, I've been in that situation where you see it, and your adrenaline starts to kick in, and you are like, "Yeah, there, there is no way that I could drive through." You, you, you freeze. You know, you. Yes, everyone is scared, whether they admit it or not. You get nervous because you're like, "What?" if they stop me, or if they ask me to get out of my car, or something, no. And then for me, my mother protective mode came in and I'd lock my doors and I'd be like, I refuse to open the door. If it's the opposition, do I pretend I'm part of the opposition? If it's the program, do I, you know what I mean? You're like, what do I do? Um, but they just kind of stop you and they're like, where are you going? And I'm like, home. And then they look in the car, like, obviously they see my daughter, like, okay, fine, go. And you're like, you panic. You're like, geez, okay, okay, we're good, we're good. Okay, just drive, and then you just drive. And you shake, and you get home, and you're like, you just, it's just surreal. During the crisis in 2011, 35 deaths were documented as directly connected and another 11 as potentially linked to the unrest, according to the Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry report, otherwise known as Biki. The number of deaths here during the crisis are really vague. Some reports say over 50 died, some say less. It's important to note, though, that this report was funded and formed by the government in Bahrain in order to investigate human rights abuses in their country. And this report was quite critical. Over 2,000 people were imprisoned, with more than a quarter of them alleging that they had been mistreated or tortured in custody. In March, the government declares a state of national safety, essentially like a state of national emergency. 
Bahrain has introduced martial law in an effort to end weeks of anti-government protests. It comes a day after Saudi troops moved into the minority Sunni-ruled kingdom to quell the unrest. Bahrain's also declared a three-month state of emergency, which will hand considerable powers to Bahrain's security forces. Back to our question, though, that started this episode. How can people, a nation that has become so polarized, reconcile? There's a quote by Edmund Burke who said that all that is necessary for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. I think that's pretty much what guided us. So Sahil starts the Bahrain Foundation for Reconciliation and Civil Discourse in 2012. They host a number of events, at least one a month, among them these reconciliation field trips to Northern Ireland. I remember Sahil telling me, you know, asking me, like, would you like to go on the trip? I was like, okay, fine. Why not, you know? This is Yaqub again, a current member of the Bahrain Reconciliation Foundation. Travel to somewhere new, it's interesting, exciting. I remember asking who's going, who's going as well. And he kept quiet, he didn't tell me who, who was there. So I remember going to the, to the airport. On the flight, I saw a number of these you know, opposition activists. It was like, maybe it was a coincidence, maybe they're not with me. So it was, I was hoping that they weren't with me, as, because that would have been a big, big problem for me. It's because Yaqub is active in a political society in Bahrain. Yeah, I mean, people aren't happy with me sort of interacting with the opposition sort of thing. So people sort of, people recognize me. And yeah, at the time I was, you know, I was in the middle of a smear campaign. There was one group who were accusing me of attempting to overthrow the government and have a whole plot. And it was, yeah, and it's a very, they had a very elaborate smear campaign. And actually, I wouldn't want to add fuel to the fire. So I remember going, uh, we all stayed at the same hotel, the Europa Hotel in Belfast. And uh, I remember coming down to the lobby uh, to start the day's activities and I see all of them in front of me. It's like, oh dear. <laughs> so I was very, you know, um, I was very, uh, like I told them, like, we don't want any photographs, no nothing, no, no tweets, no... You know, we don't want people to know that we are together in the same place, yeah. So there is a bunch of Bahrainis in Belfast. And Hiba, I just imagined like a bunch of islanders like standing on the side of the street in a little huddle. But I remember learning about about the conflict in Northern Ireland when I was in school, or at least reading about it. What, what was, did they have a name for it? Like, what was it called? So they called it the Troubles. And as you might remember from your history books, Northern Ireland has had a long history of a political turn sectarian conflict too, since the 1960s up until the late 90s. And actually, the sting of the conflict still persists today. And the link between Northern Ireland and Bahrain is more than just an accidentally parallel experience. There's an organization in Northern Ireland called the Causeway Institute that has been involved in Bahrain in these reconciliation field trips. These field trips are learning exchanges for conflict resolution and have been going on since 2012. Good morning. Rainy morning in Belfast. This is Kingsley. He and his brother founded the Causeway Institute for Peace Building and Conflict Resolution about six years ago. That's where our link to Sahel really first comes in. The Causeway Institute partners with a lot of countries to share the Northern Ireland reconciliation experience. I think it's really useful to take experiences from elsewhere. This is Jane from the Chatham House Think Tank again. You're not going to be able to apply them wholesale to your own situation, uh, but you could look at it like 
there'll be a different recipe in each case, but understanding each recipe helps you gradually learn how to cook. So in 2012, the Causeway Institute reached out to the Bahrain Foundation to see how they could help. So when Jeffrey and I looked at Bahrain... That's Kingsley's brother and co-founder. And I, I want to be careful with my language. So we, we're not talking about a direct comparison in terms of the circumstances. What we're talking about is two communities who reached a similar impasse. The comparison is that a set of conditions, a set of circumstances exist between those two communities, not dissimilar to the set of circumstances that existed between the two communities in Northern Ireland at the end of the 60s. Uh, and what we saw in Bahrain was an opportunity that if, if civil society leaders and political leaders moved in a particular direction, we felt that they could de-escalate that standoff and bring about reform and bring about progress and it wouldn't tip into the kind of situation that we got into that took us 30 years to get back out of. So remind me what exactly happened in Northern Ireland? Yeah, so let's segue for a moment into their history. So when we talk about learning exchanges between Bahrain and Northern Ireland, we can appreciate what that actually means. Kingsley grew up as one of eight children living in a small house close to the border in the Republic of Ireland. In the late 1960s, what became known as the Troubles began, but was the product of literally a thousand years growing divide between the Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist community and the Republic, Catholic, Nationalist community. Those were the two sides? Yeah, the Protestant Unionists were a majority and wanted to remain in the UK, whereas the Catholic Nationalists were a minority who wanted to leave the UK and merge with Ireland. Protestants wanted to stay in the UK and Catholics wanted to leave the UK. Okay, I think I got it. So the conflict seems political, social, and economic. And it raged on for 30 bloody years. More than 3,500 people were killed in the conflict. Most were civilians. And we grew up uh, very much uh, in touch with the troubles. The people on our street were uh, wounded and killed. Uh, and we were brought up in separate schools, separate places of worship, separate places of entertainment. Uh, so we were pretty much in a, a, a kind of apartheid society. But 1981-82, just becoming a 10-year-old, that's when I noticed the drift in our own community. And going to secondary school on a bus, a shared bus, so Catholic kids going to Catholic schools on that bus with Protestant kids going to the Protestant school, they also at the same time were becoming aware of their protest, of their struggle, a much stronger sense of tribal loyalty. The divisiveness was still very clear, for example, on the school bus in the morning. Catholic kids got on the bus first and they would dominate the seats. They would go to single occupancy. They would sit one to a seat, knowing that there were a lot of Protestant families to catch the bus in the latter part of the journey. So there was a kind of an unwritten understand that you know, we would have to stand for the 20 minute journey because of course we wouldn't sit beside a catholic conversely at the end of the school day we got the bus first so of course we dominated the seats on the way home as kingsley grew up so grew his socially learned separation between catholics and protestants catholics were historically disenfranchised economically protestants carried more political and economic control um, all we were sort of exposed to was whatever the television said about what Catholic nationalist Republican politicians were, were, were struggling. I was going to say the word complaining, which probably tells you a little about how divisive our upbringing was that I would regard as complaining. Um, uh, the, the proper word is struggling. 
but interesting that I would first think of the word complaining. <laughs> so we were painting internally in our community a very conventional, moralistic view of ourselves as being the right kind of model citizens, and these other people were just plain wrong. What's striking is how deeply these divides ran. If I'm a Protestant, you call me Kingsley or Geoffrey or John or Andrew. Uh, biblical names are very popular amongst the Protestants. If I'm Catholic, you call me Seamus, Sean. So the names help. It sounds familiar, right? This is what Yasmin was saying of how things became in Bahrain, how you could tell what someone was by their name and decide whether or not you wanted to deal with them or not, whether you wanted to hire them or not. Um, if I asked you what school you went to, that will tell me. Catholic schools generally tend to have a saint's name as a title. Protestant schools don't. We're not great on saints. Uh, the Protestant religion doesn't have many saints. The town or village you came from, the community's never mixed. And also, um, by the way, you pronounce the letter H. No one ever teaches you this. This is done by osmosis. It, it's something that's so deeply ingrained in your psyche. It's so interesting because I think when people go through that kind of division, they probably think that they're the only ones dealing with this. But it's so fascinating to know that thousands of miles away, a completely different culture was going through the same thing. How did Northern Ireland move on from these types of divides? It didn't happen overnight. It's still happening, to be honest. There are still walls dividing neighborhoods between Catholics and Protestants. In sad irony, they're called peace walls. But peace was declared in 1998, and civil society has extraordinarily moved on. So Kingsley spoke of three factors necessary for reconciliation. There is definitely kind of universal pathway to peace. But I think, it, like all pathways, it consists of you know, a number of steps. And, and not all of those steps have to be the same. The first factor he speaks of as necessary for reconciliation is political will. You can't impose a peace process from outside. You've got to have political will internally. The second factor is an active civil society. What does he mean, civil society? So I asked him that, and he explains it as the vast majority of a society that doesn't have strong political affiliations. The silent majority, for want of a better phrase. And the silent majority has to find a voice. People who understand the concept of coexistence, because they have to do it every day. When I'm in the political chamber, I don't have to coexist. Out there in the real world, you have to rely on the other person driving the car coming the other way to stay on their side of the road. And there's something in there between you and that other person in the other car that, that has a huge amount of trust embedded in it without ever realizing. You know, and, and, and so civil society has these huge elements of trust deeply embedded within it. If it can harness them, if it can harvest that latent goodwill, that, 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 that coexistence, for a good benefit. You know, no civil society wants to kill each other. It just doesn't happen. You know, otherwise, we'd run each other over in the road. It'd be the easiest way to get rid of each other. So political will that starts from within the country, an active civil society, and the third... The third aspect is the rigorous application of technical solutions. The, the peace processes are not black magic. So how do we make our parliament balanced, fair, and have to decide in a positive way? 
How do we ensure our civil rights, our human rights? How do we deal with policemen who behave in a, in a way that's unacceptable? How do we deal with protesters? How do we deal with young people who are, who are too young to be imprisoned? As you can imagine, these three ingredients for reconciliation require multiple actors, politicians, ordinary citizens like you and me, and those well-versed in creating the environments for successful dialogue and political reform. Now, we're most interested in the civil society piece today, so we'll focus on that moving forward. So coming back to Bahrain now, and to be clear, we heard from multiple people that it's just not right to compare Northern Ireland to Bahrain. The crisis in Bahrain was significantly smaller in magnitude. In Northern Ireland, an estimated 3,500 people, mainly civilians, were killed. In Bahrain, less than 50 deaths were documented as either definitely or possibly linked to the 2011 crisis, according to the Biki report. But as we've also heard, it's important to see what could have been, in a way. The Causeway Institute shares their learnings with Bahrain through trips like these reconciliation field trips in Belfast. 30 or so Bahrainis spend a week visiting former terrorists and IRA paramilitary members, widows and victims, prisoners, people who administered policy changes. It was a very I mean, eye-opening experience. This is Yaqub again. Uh, if you put people in a bus, they will chat, they will, you know, so we became very friendly. Uh, you know, we, we'd, at the end of it, we had our own inside jokes and everything, so. Is, is there an element of here in Bahrain, people, it's, it's easier to kind of fall to the, the backgrounds that you come from, the labels that you associate as your identity, you're, you're from here, I'm from mm-hmm. there. But then mm-hmm. in Belfast, you're all Bahraini amongst, you know, a lot of Irish. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Is there an element of that? Yeah, I, 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 I believe so. Yeah, if you're in a in an environment where you feel no sort of you know peer pressure or people you know following what you're doing, following every move that you make and where you're going, that's sort of a, a luxury that you don't have at home. But you can. Uh, you can be more open, you can be more relaxed in an environment where there's nobody around you to sort of pressure you to put yourself either in this column or in the other column. So, so, uh, so after we finished the program and came back to Bahrain, this was like uh, probably a few months after, I was having a meeting with, with uh, one of the representatives of uh, Causeway Institute. After their meeting with us, they had a meeting with this other, other uh, opposition group. So I saw the people who I traveled with, and this was in a hotel in Manama, and you know I was there chatting to them, you know, in the lobby, and, and it, this is this was something that would would be impossible in 2012 and or before before that before our experience together. I think probably you know taking them out of context was really important. And not being surrounded by the influence of their friends or their family or their sect or their, I don't know, or their tweets. And I think taking everything out of context and just boiling it down to having a conversation with someone in a place that is not your own, in a territory that's very neutral, allows for more candid human experiences to happen. Yeah. I think, as you said, taking someone out of the context that is so heavily charged, where you almost feel like you have to behave in a certain way to kind of prove something, 
or to to align yourself with your community. I think when you're taken out of that context, then sort of all of those labels and boxes just kind of fall away. Like you start to humanize them. Like they're no, they're, they have emotions and they have feelings and they laugh and they respond to things. Like they're, they're no longer just, it's so easy to, to take all the political rhetoric or all of the heavily charged rhetoric and just kind of vilify it or antagonize it or feel like it's so different from you because I don't see it as connected to a person. But as soon as I start to connect those things to a person, they become a multidimensional person as opposed to just being this flat ideology that is so different from me. In Bahrain, if you're on this side of the road, it's a completely different word than the other side of the road. Although it's so, Bahrain is so tiny, but you have very different mentalities, very different upbringings, very different cultures. You would imagine that Bahrain, through its very rich history, that you know people would understand each other better. But that, unfortunately, that sort of bubble sort of burst uh, in 2011, and and a lot of people realized that you know I don't really understand that they don't really understand each other. They don't know where they're coming from. Whether this was within sort of the political elite or, you know, on your, your average Muhammad and, and Ali. I mean, they, don't, they don't really understand where each person is coming from. They don't understand each other's fears. They don't understand what kinds of experiences they, they've, they've been through. And, I mean, and that's very unfortunate I mean, in Bahrain. That's exactly the function of these types of reconciliation trips to Northern Ireland. And the foundation does more to promote this type of dialogue and understanding within Bahrain. They organized two unity prayers in 2015 in the aftermath of the tragic Islamic State bombings of Shia mosques in Saudi and in Kuwait. And both sermons, the one in Ali and the one in Fatah Mosque, were all about unity in Islam and about being, you know, praying to one qibla, one direction, and that these differences are not what make us is what's, you know, our, our similarities is that makes us these kind of things. The foundation has organized an event at least once a month since they formed in 2012, be it a seminar, a field trip, or what they call dialogue dinners, where they bring 10 to 30 different, seemingly opposing people together for an intimate meal. It's done in my late father's house, and, and it's sort of neutral ground. If you're inviting people to a house over a dinner, the setting changes immediately. They drop their guard. So Sahir will kick off talking about the foundation and then uh, each one of these evenings they would have some sort of theme or an icebreaker question. Like what role should the foundation play in reconciliation? And uh, what he would do is he would ask the question and everyone sitting in the measures would have a turn to speak their mind about the, the issue. <laughs> Funnily enough though, but when people get the chance to talk, they don't really answer the question. They just pour their hearts out and saying that the other side is wrong and this is, this is why they're wrong and this is why we are on the right side of history and you're on the wrong side of history. So, so they sort of vent out what's kept inside. And then sometimes I just have to politely calm people down. But if, if, if you, you know, what is interesting is even some of these hardliners, you know, when they sit with someone else or when you meet them face to face, they're a lot less hardline than you, than you think, you know. So really, it's for us, it's, 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 we don't even want people to agree on something, but we just want them to look at the other side and say, well, he's not a monster, he's not really crazy. He's, and I think that's, that's, that's the magic of this, to just let them see the other person as a human being.
are we going to change Bahrain? I don't think so. But I think they are contributing. Um, but we, we, we don't know how to quantify it. And we continuously ask people, including Suhail, is Bahrain better off five years later? I can't tell you are Sunnis and Shias better off. You need to ask Sunnis and Shias and see. Some say we're better off, some say we're not. It really depends who you ask. Sometimes you speak with one person, you get a picture of Bahrain, you sit with someone else, and it's like it's a different country. And who knows? I mean, we, we can, what I can tell you is what we observe. Are, are people better off? You need to ask the people. I think that's a tough one, I think. This is Yasmin again. Like, how do you define what's better when, you know, because so many things have changed and different and have evolved and what have you. So, you know, five, six years ago, you, you never, and for me personally, it never crossed my mind, you know, religion and what have you. Um, now you're a bit more, I think, aware of people, whether, whether, you know, you just, they're probably your best friend, but you at least know more about them. And, and it's sad in a way, but at the same time, you're like, oh, okay, I, I know you're Sunni or Shia. Okay, cool. We've got that established. Doesn't bother me, but now I know. Um, but uh, I don't know, like, I think we're different. We're not what we used to be. We're different. Today's episode was produced by Hiba Fisher and myself, Razan Al-Zayani, with support from Lily Crown and sound design by Ramzi Bashur. Special thanks to our guests Yaqub, Basil, Yasmin, Sahel al Gosebi from the Bahrain Foundation for Reconciliation and Civil Discourse, Jane Kinnanmont of the Chatham House Think Tank, and Kingsley Donaldson of the Causeway Institute in Belfast. We fact-checked our stats to the Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry Report. If you're interested to learn more about the situation in Bahrain, be sure to check out this episode page on our website, www.kerneycultures.com. As always, if you like what you've heard here today, please leave a comment or rate us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. It really helps boost our rankings. Till next time.